From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today on the show, we have a special episode for you. We're featuring a collection of award-winning stories from the couple who fought for marriage equality in Massachusetts 15 years ago. Every time, if you look at any interview that we've done, we've never talked about the trauma. To the New Hampshire man at the center of a First Amendment dispute. What they did, being the cowards that they are, is they ran and cried to the seacoast online and said, would you please take that down? He said a bad thing about us. Plus, we'll talk about how an immigrant dream of owning a triple-decker is not as attainable as it once was in New England. The usage of what we consider kind of iconic triple-deckers and double-deckers has changed dramatically. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. As we say goodbye to 2020 and move forward into the new year, we wanted to return to a collection of New England News Collaborative stories that won coveted national and regional awards in 2020. We start the show with a little-known and little-used law on the books in New Hampshire. It's called criminal defamation, and it gives police the ability to arrest someone for intentionally spreading lies. But the law is seen by some as a potential violation of the First Amendment. As New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman reports, there's a federal court case challenging the New Hampshire law, and an Exeter resident named Robert Fries is at the center of it. Robert Fries's police file is as thick as the Bible— but it contains a very different collection of stories. Take the time he hit a traffic flagger and drove off. Authorities say it was fairly easy to track Freeze down. WMUR covered the incident back in August 2017. This is the flagger Freeze hit before fleeing the scene. It was a blue PT cruiser with a Trump 1 license plate, which was uh, <laughs> kind of interesting. But <laughs> Bob Freeze remembers it this way. So I go to the Stratum Library, I'm looking at the news, and I see police looking for a Trump 1 driver, and I went, that's me. And I said, okay, I'm out of here, I don't want to get my car towed. Freeze turned himself in, he pled guilty, he still has that license plate. There are 107 police reports involving Freeze, just in Exeter alone since 2001. Lots of traffic-related stuff, disputes with neighbors, riding his bike on the sidewalk. Then there are all the no trespass orders, places he's banned from in town. Stillwell's Ice Cream, Rite Aid, Ruffner Real Estate, Moe's Italian Sandwiches, Blue Ribbon Dry Cleaners, Puddle Jumpers, Luna Chicks Boutique, even the Congregational Church. Some of these stem from being caught rooting through their respective dumpsters. Bob Fries is a passionate dumpster diver. He rescues discarded clothing, food. You don't know when you have a can of soup that, that the can was dented. You know, I mean, does a dented, you know, do you ever sit down at a meal and say, this tastes like it came from a dented can? I mean, it's ridiculous. Freeze lives in a spotless mobile home by himself. He's in his early 60s, never married. He's been on disability since the mid-1990s. He's got hundreds and hundreds of VHS movies in his living room and a framed photo of Princess Diana on the wall. Anyways, all those interactions with the Exeter police have led him to form some strong opinions. These guys... I call them scumbags. In the span of just a few months, that criticism got him arrested. It got him a settlement check for $17,000, 
and it put him at the center of a free speech case that could rewrite New Hampshire's criminal code. The whole mess began with a newspaper article published last summer. I'm Alex Lacasse. I'm a reporter with the Seacoast Media Group, a Seacoast Online covering uh, the greater Exeter community. For his first story for the weekly paper, the Exeter Newsletter, Lacasse wrote about a police officer's retirement party. Total feel-good story. It runs on the front page and prominently on the newsletter's website. I don't think the newsletter had been finished being delivered that next day to uh, our, our customers when I had a request from the police chief to remove a comment uh, of a man who I think the alias was uh, Exeter Bob. It was actually Bob Exeter, not Exeter Bob, who had posted the comment on the paper's Facebook page. Bob Freeze. I was on social media exercising free speech, and I said... Uh, Uh, Probably something like good riddance to the dirtiest cop I've ever met in my life. The newspaper wasn't interested in angering the police. It took Freeze's comment down. What they did, being the cowards that they are, is they ran and cried to the Seacoast online and said, would you please take that down? He said a bad thing about us. And they did. So Freeze reposts the comment. Again, they take it down. Then a few weeks go by. And Alex Lacasse gets an email from Freeze. Bob had said, hey... I actually was arrested for posting these comments online, and I was charged with, quote, criminal defamation of character. The Exeter police filed criminal charges against Freeze for the comment. They did so under New Hampshire's criminal defamation statute, which makes it a misdemeanor to say or write anything that you know is false that will expose someone to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule. Calling the Exeter police dirty, they said, met that standard. But here's the thing. To commit criminal defamation under New Hampshire law... You have to knowingly tell a lie that harms someone. Bob Freeze, he says he believes that this is a corrupt police department. He offers all kinds of anecdotes as examples. I saw them come flying down Court Street one day, high-speed police, pulling over an old woman in a Volvo station wagon. My God, Super Trooper, what did you think she was doing? The Exeter police declined to comment for this story. To be clear, Freeze has no proof, no documentation that any Exeter cop is corrupt. The department is not under any known investigation. Still, for his own reasons, Freeze says he believes it. And because of that, his comments are not a crime. At least that's what the state attorney general concluded in a legal memo it released about the case. The Exeter police quickly dropped the charges. Bob Freeze then turned around and threatened to sue the police department for wrongful arrest, the department settled. Freeze got a check for 17 grand. All this earned Freeze a fair amount of headlines, including in the New York Times. Again, reporter Alex Lacasse. Bob has kind of almost become this martyr for the First Amendment. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or, you know, it's less than deserved. It's just kind of what it's become. <laughs> The ACLU is now using what happened to Freeze to challenge the constitutionality of the state's criminal defamation law. It's filed a complaint in federal court. These laws, and there are 25 states with them on the books, they're a thorn in the side of First Amendment advocates, in part because of who typically gets accused. It's usually people who criticize uh public officials or criticize members of law enforcement. This is Letha Knott. She's the director of the Freedom Forum Institute, a nonpartisan group that advocates for the First Amendment. She says the better avenue for handling these kinds of disputes is in the civil courts, where a judge or jury can award you monetary damages. Knott says that ensures that the powerful can't simply arrest their critics to try to silence them. As for Bob Freeze, well, Knott says his is exactly the kind of speech worth protecting. You know, 
I'll say that when it comes to the First Amendment, um, a lot of times the plaintiff you have isn't necessarily someone you would like, um, because, of course, that's what tests the bounds of, of free speech, speech that most people find abhorrent or, or offensive. In New Hampshire, on average, just three people each year are charged with criminal defamation. It's rare. And yet, Bob Fries has actually been arrested twice on this charge. A few years ago, he posted at least 30 allegedly false things on Craigslist about a life coach. Fries pled guilty, but he maintains that like the more recent charge, it's all bogus. The police, specifically the Exeter police, just have it in for him. I guess this would raise the question of, of why. I mean, they don't treat every Exeter resident because, like uh, this. I call, I call them on what they are, okay? They don't like me going around telling the truth. I, in my opinion, they're the dirtiest bunch of cops, most corrupt cops I've met in my life. Let me ask you this, Bob. What do you think they would say about you? He's the most disgusting, low-life degenerate on the face of the earth. But guess what? I sleep like a baby every night. Bob Fries told me several times inside his living room that it takes a criminal to spot a criminal, that his extensive arrest record and near continuous exposure to law enforcement makes him the best guy to speak out against corruption. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. To give you an idea of how long court challenges like this can take, Todd Bookman produced that story in April 2019, and the case is still working its way through the legal process. That story won a national Edward R. Murrow Award. Up next, we go to a regional Murrow winner from GBH in Boston. The story aired in 2019, 15 years after Massachusetts legalized marriage for same-sex couples. Massachusetts was the first state in the nation to do so. Hillary and Julie Goodridge were the face of the movement. The lawsuit that brought equality bears their name, and amidst great fanfare and great protests, they wed on the first day they could. Till death do we part. Till death do we part. But five years later, they were getting divorced. GBH Radio's Gabriella Emanuel tells us that the Goodridges say, in winning the right to marry, they lost their own marriage. Historians often divide the equal marriage movement into before Goodridge and after Goodridge. A decade later, the Supreme Court weighed in, guaranteeing same-sex couples the right to marry nationwide. Still today, the Goodridge decision is held up alongside monumental Supreme Court decisions. Julie has a picture. From a gay pride march and somebody was holding a sign that said Brown, Roe, and Goodridge. And, um, you know, I just kind of love that. But Julie says it's not all puppies and kittens. Fifteen years after their wedding, the Goodridges have decided to speak more candidly about the entirety of their experience. Hillary and Julie and their daughter Annie Goodridge came together at Julie's apartment in Boston. Every time, if you look at any interview that we've done, we've never talked about the trauma. Julie says the trauma took a couple different forms. Initially, Hillary remembers it was the pressure to be perfect. The stress of feeling like I have the entire community um, resting on our being likable. Hillary says every TV outlet wanted shots of her flipping pancakes, Julie ironing, Annie eating breakfast. We had to, you know, sort of look like the girls who could be next door, be not too threatening. You know, Julie and I weren't walking around in leather. No leather, no piercings, just two moms and their curly-haired daughter. They say the trauma also came from being targeted. The Goodridge lawsuit became a call to arms for opponents of same-sex marriage, including then-President George W. Bush. Our nation must defend the sanctity of marriage. I remember watching that and thinking, 
Oh my gosh. Well, we were like, we just looked at each other. We were watching He's the State of the about Union. Us? Yeah. It really got crazy very quickly. Across the country, there were efforts to forbid same-sex marriage. 41 states ultimately limited marriage to heterosexual couples. In the middle of it all, Hillary remembers getting a voicemail from her mother that went something like this. Hi, darling. Well, I see today you've managed to piss off the Pope and the president. But when you get done with that, please give your mother a call. The Pope and the President, and soon Annie's playmates, too. Elementary school classmates refused to come to her house. She was called homophobic slurs. And Julie and Annie recall opponents sent around a flyer. It went into, you know, our sex life and how we were harming our daughter. It was sent to the house of every family that was at my school. And the final type of trauma, Julie says, was losing each other. You know, we would kind of go our separate ways in the house. Julie says seeking couples counseling wasn't an option. We couldn't do that. It felt like too much of a risk. It felt like the word would get out. Less than two years after getting married, Hillary and Julie had separated. When news got out, it sent shockwaves through the gay community. Julie remembers getting... An incredibly nasty email about how we were going to be destroying the gay community. And I just felt like saying, you know what? This is not what I chose. You know, I'm doing the best I can. Annie was 10 when they separated. It felt like our family let everyone down. With 15 years of distance, the three still spent Christmas together. And they say it was worth it, but they're not sure if they'd do it all again. Then Annie starts a story. Nearby, there's a restaurant. And there's this waitress who works there. A few weeks ago, the waitress showed them pictures of her wedding. Julie says they saw two smiling brides. I remember th thinking, she has absolutely no idea who we are. And it, that's, what was kind that's, of, awesome. that's, that's what was kind of great that's about great. looking at those pictures, is she was just showing us because she could. And she felt comfortable to bring her pictures to her place of work. They were beautiful pictures. And Annie Goodridge says it's nice to have their family name stamped on something that made many gay couples happy. That was GBH Radio's Gabriella Emanuel. The story originally aired in 2019. After the break, we'll travel to a gym in Vermont where a Marine veteran is trying to break the world record for most burpees in 12 hours. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. If you're just joining us, we're doing something a little bit different this week. We're airing stories from the New England News Collaborative that won national and regional awards in 2020. We start off this segment with a piece that took home a second-place national award. It first aired in March 2019 and takes us to a gym in central Vermont, where Marine veteran Jason Moselle is attempting to break the world record for the most burpees in a 12-hour period. 
For Moselle, who survived a suicide attempt after his military service, the record attempt was a culmination of sorts to a dramatic life turnaround. And as Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld reports, Moselle is trying to use his own story to bring awareness to veteran suicide. It's a little before 6 p.m. on a nasty weather Friday in central Vermont, and Jason Moselle is a tattooed bundle of nervous energy. I just want to thank everybody for coming today, braving the weather out there. Mother Nature trying to hold us down. That ain't happening. We got a storm brewing in here tonight. It's going to be 12 hours of pure burpee. Madness. Moselle explains the Guinness World Record ground rules to the small crowd that's gathered to witness the feat. To complete a burpee, you start flat on the ground, face down and arms outstretched, then a push-up, then rise to a standing position, then jump in the air, and then lie back down and start all over again. Moselle will have to do this 4,557 times in 12 hours, that's once every nine seconds, to break the existing record. So he cues up the heavy metal playlist on his iPhone. And the burpee madness begins. A couple weeks before the record attempt, I caught up with Moselle at his log cabin house in Corinth, where he lives with his wife Amber and a goofy Great Dane named Gomez. Moselle grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut, but the couple moved to rural Vermont shortly after Moselle was honorably discharged from the Marines in 2007, mainly because he wanted to be in a quiet place without many people. Moselle is 33 now and still sports a tight military buzz cut. He enlisted when he was just 16 years old, a few weeks after 9-11. I tell people that was our Pearl Harbor, and everybody was really fired up to get enlisted and get over there and defend freedom. By 2004, Mazel was in Aramadi, Iraq, with a Marine battalion that would lose 34 members during its seven-month deployment. You think it's going to be just like a video game, but I'll tell you the thing that all of a sudden really changes it is that when you take a life or you see a life taken. Mazel left Iraq in 2004, but he says the things he saw and did there would not leave him. There were night terrors, severe depression, and the pills prescribed by military psychiatrists only seemed to make things worse. Then one night in 2005, I said to hell with this and took all my pills and chugged it down with some alcohol and, you know, was like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. The suicide attempt happened when Mazel was still in the Marines on a deployment to Okinawa, Japan. He says he was locked in a military psych ward on the base, but eventually summoned the wits to make it through his four-year military commitment to the Marines. As recently as 2013, though, Mazel says he was drinking heavily and losing a battle against what he calls the demon. Until he was channel surfing one day and saw an infomercial for a fitness video called Insanity. Are you ready to take the Insanity Challenge? Ready to get insane abs, insane arms, insane legs, and insane weight loss in just 60 days. Insanity may be the hardest workout ever put on DVD. Mazel completed the 60-day Insanity Challenge, and something sparked inside him. Soon, he signed up for a 10-mile obstacle course. Then came grueling daily workouts at home to prepare for ultra-marathons and multi-day endurance events. And in those moments of exhaustion, Mazel says he came to terms with the person that war had made him. This is who you are. 
your time in Iraq, your depression, your night terrors, your everything. This is you. And so how do you face it? How do you become mentally stronger than that demon that's fighting you? We're back to the gym now, where Mazel is trying to break the world record. It's 4 a.m., and he's still rising, jumping, dropping. Rising, jumping, dropping. Ten hours in, though, it's become evident that Mazel will not be breaking any records. He wants to keep at it anyway, wants to go the full 12 hours, because while Mazel does not always win, he's not the kind of guy to give up either. Not anymore, anyway. The small crowd that's been here since last night is bleary-eyed but buzzing, they include the certified personal trainers who have been counting his burpees and confirming they meet Guinness's standards, and friends and family who traveled from as far away as Connecticut to watch the attempt. They all count down the final seconds to the 12-hour cutoff. They tally the final burpee, number 3,194. And then... I'm going to sit down with you. Yeah, because I've been working hard all night. Yeah. <laughs> a woman named Valerie Pilata walks over to the exhausted former Marine who's panting on the floor. Pilata's son, Josh, is a former Vermont National Guardsman who died by suicide in 2014 after a deployment to Afghanistan. Pilata's here because Mazel is using this record attempt to raise money for a suicide prevention organization named in Josh Pilata's honor. This is just an amazing feat. And this man right here, um, because you're still here with us, mm-hmm. is what the mission of the Josh Pilata Fund is all about. The world record didn't matter much to Valerie Pilata, it turns out. What mattered was why Mazel wanted to break it. And uh, losing Josh, my heart is shattered into pieces. And you've helped put one of those pieces back in my shattered heart. So. And then the mom whose son lost his battle with PTSD hugged the veteran who's winning his. That was Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld. The story aired March 2019. Since then, Moselle has continued using fitness to bring money and attention to the issue of veteran suicide. Up next, the podcast Mosaic, about the American immigrant experience. It's from the Publix Radio in Rhode Island, and it won the Regional Murrow Award for Best Podcast at a Large Market Station in New England. One of the experiences Mosaic covered is about the New England triple-decker home. For generations, the story went like this. You come to this country as an immigrant, rent one unit of a triple-decker apartment, save your money, and buy your own triple-decker. Then, when the time is right, you pass on the home and that generational wealth to your kids. But Mosaic hosts Ana Gonzalez and Alex Noon say, today, the triple-decker narrative is a lot more complicated. Alphonse Mupenzi is a refugee from the Congo. About a decade ago, violence forces him to flee his home country with his wife and three young kids. They make it to Uganda and spend five long years there waiting to be permanently resettled. Then, in 2016, they get very good news. They're being resettled as refugees in America, in a city called Providence, Rhode Island. I I was excited. I was excited as a refugee, and our hope was to be well, to be safe. So I was excited. Everything was like a dream. Yes. When Alphonse and his wife and kids arrive in Rhode Island, They get help from Dorcas International and the Central Congregational Church in Providence. 
and they quickly get put up in their first apartment. The building is totally unfamiliar. They're living on the third floor, and two apartment units are below them. It's a New England triple-decker. And it catches Alfonso's attention. I used to ask my landlord, so he's a Spanish guy, he's a good guy. I used to chat with him. How, how comes this? Until the end, he said, why don't you buy this house? I was even one year. You know, that, then that's how I started getting that idea. Yeah, that's cool. Alphonse doesn't have the money to buy the triple-decker, but those conversations get him thinking and dreaming. Like thousands and thousands of immigrants before him, Alphonse's goal is now to one day buy a multifamily home. In my culture, if you have a home, you have a country. If you don't have a home, you are moving. Today you are here, tomorrow you are on the other side too. You are like, in French we say nomad, you are like nomad, so that's number one. Number two is, I have a kid, I just want to give them stability, to be stable. Number three is, that is kind of business, for income, to earn more, yeah. New England triple-deckers started going up in big numbers about 150 years ago, housing waves of immigrants from places like Italy, Portugal, Canada, and Eastern Europe. And today, they are still really important to immigrants in this region. A three-family home is often the first place an immigrant family lands when they get to Rhode Island or Massachusetts or other New England states. But the role of the triple-decker isn't what it used to be. Nowadays, a lot of other people besides immigrants want to own triple-deckers. And even more people want to rent three-decker apartments. The usage of what we consider kind of iconic triple-deckers and double-deckers has changed dramatically. This is Brenda Clement. She's the executive director of Housing Works RI. It's a research and advocacy group based at Roger Williams University. She says triple-decker home prices have more than doubled since the Great Recession. And the reason boils down to pretty basic math. Lots of people want them. But the number of triple-deckers is limited, and we don't make new ones like we used to. Because we just have simply not been producing enough affordable housing over the past 10, 20 years in Rhode Island, uh, we see more and more pressure on that rental stock. Supply is limited, demand is steady and growing, and um, price goes up. I mean, basic economics 101. The cities in Rhode Island with the most triple-deckers are Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, Woonsocket, and Newport. And each community faces its own set of challenges when it comes to triple-deckers. In Providence, colleges like Brown, RISD, Johnson & Wales, and Providence College don't have the space they need to house all of their students. So many of them, like me, go looking for triple-decker apartments to rent off campus. My first apartment was on Power Street as the first floor of a triple-decker. Yeah, so developers in places like the east side of Providence are also in the mix, too buying up three-deckers, gutting them, and turning them into higher-priced condos in gentrified neighborhoods. Then there are investors who want to make money on short-term renters. In Newport, buying a triple-decker is harder because people with money want them so they can rent out the units to the Airbnb crowd in the summer months. And anywhere you find triple-deckers, you also find homes with lots of problems. So many of them are old and deteriorating. They're not safe places to live, and many immigrants don't have the money or access to loans to fix them up. There may be lead, there may be asbestos, there may be other uh, environmental challenges in those buildings that make them not good investments um, for a young family or somebody who's kind of wanting to buy their first home to, 
develop some equity. Add all this up, and the classic narrative about the immigrant in the triple-decker home starts to look less and less relevant, or at least under threat. Triple-deckers are in flux. This is Mark Levitt. He's a filmmaker currently working on a documentary titled Triple Decker, A New England Love Story. The Triple Decker now, like most housing, is a commodity. It's not about the sentiment of the place. It's not about finding a place where you know you're going to live a long time for many people. Now you have international money with lots of cash to spend on transforming the triple-decker into simply another way to make money in a portfolio of lots of money. Mark says the current trend has been emerging over generations. The children and grandchildren of immigrants who moved into triple-deckers in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s moved out in vast numbers decades ago. They didn't want to work in urban factories like their parents. They wanted to live in the suburbs, work desk jobs, drive cars and go to shopping malls. Immigrants from places like the Caribbean, South and Central America, and Africa and Asia replaced them in triple-deckers. At the same time, financial institutions began to disinvest in urban neighborhoods, and many triple-deckers deteriorated. But today, people with professional jobs and money have moved back into New England cities, and triple-deckers specifically competing for them with today's generation of immigrants and lower-income families looking for affordable housing. And now investors and developers are capitalizing on the opportunity that presents in cities like Providence, Jamaica Plain in Boston, or Dorchester and Worcester in Massachusetts. We could start with maybe what is the traditional triple-decker layout. I'm touring a renovated triple-decker in Worcester, Massachusetts, with a developer named Taylor Bearden. The place is empty and still has that fresh paint smell. The apartment has stainless steel appliances, new cabinets, and polished stone countertops. The walls that typically separate the common rooms of a triple-decker have been torn down. So we're really creating these spaces where we're taking the existing footprint of the triple-decker and converting it to something that has all the amenities you might expect in a normal home today. Like a lot of developers in New England, Taylor and his business partners have been buying up triple-deckers for a few years now. He stresses that he's not your average landlord. He wants to preserve triple-deckers, strip away decades of slapdash repairs and neglect, and position his buildings to be safe places to live for another hundred years. Finding a way to get back to the bones and fix the issues with those bones and start fresh is really how we're going to preserve the triple-decker as sort of a cultural heritage piece, but also an essential piece of housing for our neighborhoods. But doing this kind of renovation is costly. Taylor says he can sink more than $300,000 into renovating all three floors of a building. And that's on top of the money spent to buy the house. And that cost has to be made up somewhere, which means higher rents. And that prices a lot of people out, including many newer immigrants and their families. They're doing this everywhere. It's gentrification, basically. Jen Falcon was a renter in one of the triple-deckers Taylor and his partners purchased a couple years back. Jen says she and the immigrant family below her got kicked out to make way for the repairs needed to make the home suitable to what Taylor calls a middle-market customer. And we, used to, we used to have a nice, you know, like, community. You know, I used to help the kids downstairs because they didn't speak much English. I helped them with their homework. Their family cooked me some amazing food. 
Jen admits the building she was living in was not in perfect condition. Still, she says she's skeptical of Taylor and other developers. She says they're good marketers, but what they're really doing is putting a friendly face on gentrification that displaces immigrants and people with lower incomes. That's the sales pitch. They want people from Boston. They want to turn Worcester into West Boston, you know, making it all cool and stuff. It's easy to just point to everyone who is working in housing as a real estate developer and say you are a gentrifier if you are trying to improve housing and the consequences increased rents. But the reality is so much more complicated than that. Taylor says gentrification is a problem and people should be talking about it. But he says people need to look at the situation realistically. He says renters, including immigrants, need affordable housing. But those options might not be available anyway if absentee landlords keep letting their buildings fall apart. Those buildings could end up condemned or torn down, and then no one can live in them. We're not trying to create a situation where we displace people, even though you could look at housing development that raises rents as gentrification. But to me, the bigger picture becomes you're you're learning a lesson in how to stabilize these properties, and now we're trying to learn a new lesson, which is how to create these same properties that are affordable. Taylor's hoping that his next project will produce that kind of affordability. He plans to use grant money available from the city of Worcester and the state of Massachusetts to renovate triple-deckers while, at the same time, taking on less debt. That would allow him to keep rents low and make triple-decker apartments accessible to people who can't afford his current rates possibly even immigrant families. Even as developers continue buying up triple-deckers and prices rise, it seems like the immigrant dream of owning a triple-decker home isn't going away anytime soon. Right. For now, it is definitely here to stay. We sat by here. This living room. You got your TV, the couch, and the, the flowers. Yeah. Couch, flowers, TV, and our... Photos. Alphonse Mupenzi and I are doing a little tour of his apartment. He and his family are renting in a two-family house right now on the east side of Providence. Who's the family in the, in the photos? Yeah, that is me raising the hand. That's my wife, Charlotte. These are my kids, Oliver, Sandra, and in the middle, there is Sonia. Alphonse is working in the laundry department at Rhode Island Hospital, and his kids are enrolled in school now. He's also still holding on to that goal of someday owning his own triple-decker. Yes, that's my dream. Yeah, I, I, I'm praying for that. Yeah. If Alphonse's prayers are answered, he'll become one of the thousands of immigrants going back all the way to the 1800s who came to New England, saved up, and got a shot at home ownership with the three-family home. That was Alex Nunes and Ana Gonzalez, hosts of the podcast Mosaic from the Publix Radio. They produced that piece back in November 2019. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this special, featuring award-winning stories from the New England News Collaborative. We've got a story about an operating room that's working hard to conserve energy. And we'll go on a run with people who keep racing, despite the ever-hotter New England summers. It's next. Thank you. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back with two more stories that took home first place national awards, and we head to Massachusetts. At 8.30 on a Wednesday morning, nurses roll 83-year-old Reverend Ralph Key into a place with one of the largest carbon footprints in Boston, a hospital operating room. The healthcare sector produces 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Hospitals are more than a third of that, and operating rooms are their hotspot for emissions, waste, and energy use. But this OR, inside a renovation at Boston Medical Center, is about as climate-friendly as they come. The renovation has helped the hospital reduce the energy it draws from the grid by 70% since 2012. As he prepares for surgery, Reverend Key says he's pleased. That's important for Boston itself. Talk about climate change and all that, we're right in the middle of it. So, Ralph Key has agreed to let us watch all the things nurses and doctors will do differently to reduce the impact his surgery will have on the planet. WBUR's Martha Biebinger picks up the story. Nurses bring Ralph Key to a stop in the middle of a room filled with monitors, movable lights, and tables covered in blue cloth. Ralph is here because his left carotid artery, one of two major vessels that send blood to the brain, is blocked. Ralph's procedure begins with general anesthesia, delivered via a plastic mask that covers his nose and mouth. All right, Ralph, nice big deep breaths in and out. We're going to take great care of you, okay? And right here, with each breath, Ralph's climate change journey begins. Ralph inhales sevoflurane. In many operating rooms across the country, the gas going into Ralph's lungs would be desflurane. But Dr. Mauricio Gonzalez says BMC rarely uses it anymore. So Desler has a higher carbon footprint. It's a, it's a bigger uh, greenhouse gas than the other anesthetics. By one calculation, desflurane is so carbon intensive that giving it to Ralph for this two-hour surgery would be like driving 756 miles as compared to 16 miles with an equivalent dose of sevoflurane. The CO2 Ralph exhales this morning will be captured inside a canister with pellets that Gonzalez says are safe to throw away. The whole focus on the environmental impact of um, operating rooms, it's a relatively new thing. So yes, we're responsible for the patient at the table, but in the end, we're all responsible for that planet we live in. That attention to the planet unfolds during Ralph's surgery in two more ways, lower energy use and less waste. If you've been inside a hospital lately, you know there's a lot of waste. So this, anything that rips, goes in there. Nurse Polly Woodworth tears the paper back from a package of sterile tubing and tosses the ripped pieces in a large green trash bag. So we have all these receptacles. Green is recycle. Red is for bloody trash. This is laundry, and this is clean trash. Woodworth watches one of the surgeons toss a large piece of molded plastic in the trash. She moves it to recycle it. I'm a trash picker. I can't help myself. BMC recycles about 38% of what would otherwise be trash. And today, the trash bag fills about twice as fast as its green bag neighbor. To understand why, let's get back to the operating table where Ralph is out. Surgeon Doug Jones looks for ways to prop up Ralph's left shoulder and create better access to his neck. Just, you're going to reach and you're going to grab that shoulder with your, yeah, that's fine. Okay, ready? Yep. One, two, three. So we need a towel. 
Can we get a blanket, please? Every towel, blanket, and drape, coils of tubing and sponges arrive packaged in double-layered synthetic fabric, often called blue wrap, that cannot be recycled. BMC tosses 13 tons of it every year. There's a partial solution in the works, turning those sheets of blue wrap into BMC tote bags. Right angle. Dr. Jones uses what looks like a thin pair of scissors but has hooks instead of sharp tips to clean tissue away from Ralph's clogged carotid artery and get a better look. It's a little bit deep, so I'm just trying to get... But it's right here. Jones punctures the blood vessel, clamps one end, and threads a wire through the plaque buildup, singing along to his R&B playlist. That's where the... Keep going. A little bit more. Stop. One reason operating rooms are such energy epicenters is ventilation. The air in this room is sucked out and replaced for purity 20 times an hour as compared to six times an hour in the hospital room where Ralph will spend the night. And operating rooms are increasingly equipped with high-tech machinery that increase their energy load. Hi, we're going to start x-raying. Surgeons roll a machine over Ralph. It takes images of Ralph's shoulder and neck as Jones opens Ralph's artery to slide in a stent. Uh, Can you dim the room lights? 40 LED bulbs in this room fade, making the images of Ralph's left carotid artery glow on two large monitors. BMC converted all hospital lighting to LED bulbs, which are between 50 and 80 percent more efficient. Is the artery stable? Yeah, I'm stabilizing it. (coughs) I need a new stitch. Operating rooms are colder than the rest of the hospital. Keeping the room temperature around Ralph at 65 degrees is no easy feat with a dozen bodies, lots of lights, and machinery. BMC uses what's called a free cooling system. In the winter, it uses outside air to chill water that cools this OR. The hospital is warmed by the heat thrown off of an energy plant installed three years ago. Sheath looks good, right? I think we're ready to clamp. In a few minutes, Jones steps away from the table. X-ray images of Ralph's neck before and after the surgery are still on the screen. Two hours ago, his left carotid artery was almost completely blocked. I mean, you can see there's a, just a whisper of blood getting through there, and now you can see it's uh, normal. BMC aims to make similar repairs to an ailing planet. Senior VP for Facilities Bob Biggio is one of the masterminds behind the hospital's climate-focused renovations. You know, when we launched our campus redesign plan, it seemed only natural that trying to, to create a healthy environment for our patients was one of the places you would start with trying to keep your patients healthy. BMC pledges to be carbon neutral next year, although meeting that target is proving to be more difficult than the hospital imagined. BMC offsets carbon produced here with renewable energy credits from solar power purchased in North Carolina. But as the grid gets greener overall, the value of those credits is dropping. Orange jello. I like oranges. <laughs> By mid afternoon, really Ralph good. Key is sitting up in bed eating jello and applesauce. But I was pleased and almost surprised that I could start eating already. So I must be doing pretty good. Yeah, and praise God for that, right? Ralph will get a full meal soon. Anything he does not eat will be dumped into the hospital's biodigester, which turns four tons of food waste into water every month. The hospital has spent more than $400 million on all of these changes. They haven't paid for themselves yet, but Biggio projects they will within three years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. 
The final award-winning story we're featuring on Next today comes from CAI on Cape Cod, and it takes us to the Falmouth Road Race. The race brings nearly 13,000 runners to Cape Cod each summer, but in the 48 years since the first run, the temperature and humidity on race days have risen significantly. This story first aired in the summer of 2019 when CAI's Eve Zukoff went to find out how this Cape tradition is trying to keep pace against climate change. Okay, so standing tall, lifting those legs up. Here, march, 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 march. On a hot August night in Falmouth, fitness coach Anne Curie Pressig leads a group of women through a workout in her backyard. And at seven at night, how hot is it? 80 now, but I'm sure the feels like temperature is above 80. So what I have runners do on days like today is mix in running and walking. So you guys just run the lap around the house. The group is here to train for the Falmouth Road Race. Part of their training, Carrie Pressig says, is learning how to manage the heat. After the warm-up lap, the women head out for a run in the neighborhood, which means I have to go too, running, holding the microphone. We're running to the end of the road, just to let you know. No. You get, you're getting your workout in, dear, for somebody not running. That's Wendy Lathrop, a retired nurse who's looking forward to running her second Falmouth Road race. It's seven miles of pleasure, you tell yourself when you're done. Phil Burt is a Cape Cod meteorologist and a runner, And he's looked at temperature averages for every August since 1972, when the race started. In the 70s, and especially like through the mid-80s, there was a a lot of stretches there where it's pretty common where you would have an overnight low in like the upper 50s. That basically doesn't happen anymore. Looking at that overnight temperature gives a good estimate for how humid the air is. Overall, since the race started, that average temperature has risen by about 3 degrees Fahrenheit. And for runners who are aiming for peak performance, a couple degrees and the humidity that goes with it can have a real impact. If you go for an 8 o'clock run in the morning now versus an 8 a.m. run 30 years ago, it's likely it's a more uncomfortable run now than it was then. That combination of greater humidity and increased heat makes it increasingly difficult for the body to cool itself. For instance, in 2003, when the temperature was 81 degrees and the humidity was 87 percent on race day, seven in every thousand runners were treated for heat stroke. That was a hot year, but we're headed in that direction. So we really found that, you know, with the years that we studied that the Falmouth Road Race tends to produce a much higher rate of exertional heat stroke among its runners compared to other races. That's Julie Nolan, a physiologist who co-authored a paper that specifically looked at the effects of heat on Falmouth Road Race runners. She says one of the major challenges the Falmouth Race poses is this time of year is a particularly tough time for runners to be on hot asphalt in the blazing sun. It's always held in the middle of August, so the environment is kind of working against them. So... Sometime in the next 47 years, could the race date be moved back into September? In a statement, race officials said anything the organization needs to do to ensure runner safety is always on the table. But if it keeps getting hotter, how long will recreational runners like Wendy Lathrop continue to toe the line in Falmouth? Um, Probably as long as I can keep moving. It's just fun. I don't have any other way. It's just fun. (laughs) 
And for the runners who will be lining up this weekend, that's what it's all about. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. Thank you. That story aired in August 2019. This past summer, in light of coronavirus concerns, the team behind the Falmouth Road Race encouraged people to run and walk at home on their own time. And that's a wrap on our awards show. You can find past episodes of Next wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. All the music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, WBUR, CAI, GBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.